Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Diego, welcome to my life in four trades. Thanks for having me. So we have four of your trades and the, the way you organize them is very interesting. We'll jump into them in a moment. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Well, I'm originally from, from Spain. I'm a mining and petroleum engineer. I did my master's in mineral economics at the Colorado School of Mines in the US and the French Institute of Petroleum in, in Paris. And I did my thesis in something called real options, which basically uh, looks at value in real assets using option theory. Um, it's a bit of a side joke. One of my professors there, uh, uh, Graham Davis, uh, you know, would describe uh, a lettuce as a call option on a salad. And that's <laughs> kind of how crazy it was. But, uh, but I guess that really marked me in many ways, sort of, it sort of opened up this idea of options and and you know starts started to look at life very much not, not just the financial that. options but it, through that lens so everything's an option you know book is an option is the, the right but not the obligation to read or whatever and so I, I was very lucky to to have the opportunity to start in financial markets um, in London were you always a, a sort of math person like did yeah. you oh yeah so this really sort of spoke to you from yeah the I beginning. sort of followed a little bit my 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 father, you know, my, my family, engineer and economist. So for me, it was you know very natural. But I I didn't. Were you a nerdy guy? Not really. I've I've been quite balanced. I, I would say I was quite sporty. Uh, Twenty kilos ago, I was okay. Uh, <laughs> football player. And uh, and yeah, so I was very lucky to have the opportunity to to join J P Morgan in London uh, in the mid late nineties. Uh, so I started uh, trading. Uh, effects and commodity markets. Um, and then I was with Goldman Sachs, with Merrill Lynch in primarily the macro commodity for an exchange area. Right. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move on to, to the buy side with my own firm, as well as uh, working for some large players like Bluecrest or Diamond. Uh, before I, I went back to Spain and I set up, uh, uh, you know, continued this, this path, which we'll talk now a little bit about, you know, following that world of options and volatility and trading and tail risk. Um, and so uh, I've been in, in that uh, field with uh, my, my own firm, but also now part of a, a bigger project, in, which has brought me back to London. Um, oh, what? Which wow. Is, which is great. Okay. So I'm sort of close circle, you know, yeah. having been in Madrid, New York, Singapore, and then back to London. And and in my in, in addition to my experience on, on the buy side and the sell side, I'm also a, a book author. Uh, written two books. The first one, uh, bestseller on the energy markets, which is the first thing that brought me over to Real Vision, I think back in 2015. Um, yeah, and then a second book called The Anti-Bubbles, and which- uh, Yeah, we've also, talked about that. Which, so you know, you're a real chronic underachiever, huh? Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks. Putting us all to shame. No. So wait, let me take a step back before you get into your trade. So you- you sort of came through the sort of mining, natural resource, engineering part of it, yeah. but really sort of 
caught on when you took that options class, really took you down the financial route. When you went to London, so you're from Spain, you moved to London. So that's a sort of different culture. And then you're really in the thick of investment banking. Did you get to to the investment bank or the floor or the trading desk and say, wow, these are my people? Or was it a little bit of a culture shock for you? Um, I was very much thinking I would work in engineering. Um, yeah, that's, that, what, that's why even, I even when I did my master's, um, that really kind of opened my 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 perspective. I think um, being exposed to you know the the people, the culture, you know, it sort of opened the world that I, I hadn't really considered. So when I started applying for different jobs, um, I, I I took that on as an an opportunity, a possibility, um, and beggars ain't choosers so when you <laughs> when you get your first job in many ways you know I, I think it's probably more important your first job marks your career sometimes more even than what you studied so in, yeah. in that way starting the trading role it was you know I didn't fully appreciate what it meant uh, yeah. at the time to be honest all I knew is JP Morgan London and 27,000 pounds, yeah. which is what it was at the time. And sometimes that's and I had no to idea. go in without I had no idea about anything else. Yeah. No, I didn't know. If it, could, it could have been any other job, but it happened to be a trading job. So I'll, that kind of uh, marked my career from there. But I uh, feel like very London? lucky. I love London. I you know, met my wife there. Uh, my three kids you know, have, were born there. Uh, so you have you were what, a Spaniard who got there and said the weather's hard. It's close. It's close. You know, my mom complained in the early days, <laughs> like until I went to Singapore, and she was sort of hoping that I would get back to London, because <laughs> obviously Singapore was so much yeah, farther away. So much further. But London's lovely. We're happy to be back. Let's jump into your trades, and this is this is really interesting because sometimes people give us life trades, and sometimes they give us sort of a, a you know a job or an actual trade trade. Um, the first one you gave us was unconscious incompetent. So tell us a little bit, and they're all going to sort of fit. Yeah, play sort of, on that. When you when when you invited me over, I thought you know if I was on the other side, you know what what would I in some ways want to hear? So I think the on the part of it, there's a chronological side of how you go through your life. On the other hand, there's a learning path, and that's where this mm. framework of consciousness and competence. I use it a lot. Um, and and I think about it a lot, and and I also wanted to link it to some sort of lesson learned. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the the idea was okay. Let's pick four traits in four different stages of my life, and uh, I think this framework uh, starts with unconscious incompetence, which is when you don't know that you don't know, um, which is obviously the most dangerous one. Um, and so from there, you progress to uh, conscious incompetence. You know that you don't know. Uh, and then you move on to, in some ways, uh, conscious uh, competence. So you know what you know, you don't know what you know, and then eventually you, you, you get to a level of expertise, you know, master level where you just know, right? It's, it's wisdom. It's, at that it's, point. It's, it's, it's unconscious competence. You yeah. just know, right? Yeah. And, and things come up very naturally. And I think the fascinating thing about this is, you know, we learn in silos. So you might be an, an unconscious competent person in sports, but you could be mm. unconsciously incompetent in politics or economics or whatever. And in my view, and this is something I work on a lot, is, is sort of bridging those worlds. Mm. So, and that's why I've done a lot of work in, you know, linking engineering and concepts. Like, for example, when I talk about volatility, I, I talk about, you know, fluid mechanics and how you have effectively 
nature and the market's transition from laminar regime to turbulent regime. And there are a lot of similarities and a lot of things we can learn. So in some ways, the idea is, can we connect those worlds? Can we effectively take areas of competence um, and, apply and, and, and apply them? And that's why I think analogies, you, you know, anybody who knows me knows I use tons of sporting analogies, I think is a very powerful way to explain concepts. So yeah. I thought, okay, let's start with, you know, one of the big mistakes, perhaps very early in, in my career. And it was one of my, you know, early trades from a, uh, personal trading perspective. And this is back in the mid, uh, late 90s, you know, it's dot-com-ish, you know, things are very babulistic, everyone's making a lot of money, and, and everyone's like, making. it was crazy, everything was just <laughs> going up, everyone thought, it, you know, everyone was a genius. And I think at that time, you know, the idea of uh, the market collapsing was, you know, you're, you're young, you're inexperienced, and so you understand the options and the market's paying you money for effectively taking the risk that something would collapse. And, and so the idea of selling options, uh, particularly puts, um, looked very enticing because, you know, it was all one way. You're naive. You don't know that you don't know. And you're sort of, it's almost like the worst thing that can happen is that you are successful mm -hmm. at the beginning, right? It's, it's um, and so you might do it once and may do it twice. And I think the key message I want to, to leave with uh, uh, people is do not confuse uh, strategies that are selling options with income. Because what tends to happen is people start to build the house from the roof. They say, look, I want to make whatever, a thousand or 10,000 or whatever it is a month. So what do I need to do to generate that? And so you end up potentially selling uh, optionality and risk in a, in a very uh, high notional, very leveraged way. And it could work for a while. You build confidence, you start trading bigger and eventually boom things happen. Mm. And so ultimately, when you are selling options, you are, it's an insurance play. You know, you, you, you could be collecting premium for a while, but it's, it's an expectancy game, right? So at the end of the day, uh, particularly if you're doing it with leverage and, and without delta hedging or other ways of protecting, it could be extremely dangerous. So I was very lucky and very blessed that I was hit in what was a large amount for me at the time. But um, uh, uh, not big enough that it sort of knocks you off. Point so, you out, yeah. And and yeah, so I think that really it was was a very valuable lesson. I think uh, since then, you know, it really these things help you, you know, gain a, a a bigger perspective. And it woke me up into the next stage of okay, you don't really understand what you're doing, um, and 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 so I think that's part of the process. So it was a very valuable lesson. I've seen so many friends over the years you know, starting to trade and being involved in options. And I think the temptation of selling options, thinking it's almost free money, or I want to generate income from this and sort of building the house through the roof mm. is extraordinarily dangerous. If you want to do that, you need to do it in the right size. And the right size may not generate sufficient income, uh, but you need to focus on the actual level of risk and what you're doing rather than thinking, I want to generate X. Yeah, what do I need to do about ahead it? To that and so I think that was, it's something that I, I suspect many of the people might be in that phase. Mm -hmm. So guys, if I can help you avoid uh, that experience, I think it's a lesson learned. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Do you think that 
that unconscious incompetence is very um, something that is really equated with youth or can we all fall victim to that all the time? Certainly when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. But can is that something we have to be on guard for throughout our 100%, lives? 100%. 100%. I think we're all in different stages in different things. And, you know, I I want to say something, uh, you know, a bit, may, may, or may, may or may not be fair, but it's almost like, you know, if I look at my, my boys and my daughter and somehow my daughter was born in conscious incompetence. So the boys were born reckless in some ways. <laughs> so you would see them do things and, and crash and do things that the girls, you know, the, the, my daughter was a lot more cautious. So I think it depends with people's personalities. It's not yeah. a boy girl thing, but some people are more naturally uh, aware that they don't know. But I think in general, most of us tend to overestimate a little bit what it is. Think about skiing you know, mm. who goes like down <laughs> or riding a bike or i think the key thing is when you when i hear how hard can this be i go like alarm <laughs> alarm alarm <laughs> alarm how hard could this be you know to to make money trading well, that and that easy usually from a distance and so I, looking and so at I, other people and doing how hard well. can this be is generally a sign of unconscious incompetence i would say so yeah. Again, no rule, no boy, girl, no age. I think we're all. But watch out for yes, that. If yes. you're saying that to yourself, yes. How did you feel when you had that setback? Because clearly, as we just established, you're very, you're very smart. You're succeeding at mastering not only engineering but options. Get a good job in London. So you're you're firing on all cylinders I think, I as think a this, young person. This lesson was also linked to FOMO, to fear of missing out in a way, or you know how you know everyone's doing it. Everyone's kind of making money. I mean, I remember. Back in the desk, uh, you know, a bunch of us analysts and associates and whatever, and people were making at the time more money uh, doing, you know, trading, you know, outside of the office. And it's almost like, why am I, why am I bothering coming here? And 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 I and I can tell you, back in few couple of years ago, three years ago, with the with Bitcoin yep. and crypto, That's just what I was gonna say. I could I could see the movie. I was like, guys, I've seen this. You know, so many people thinking, you know, I'm gonna quit my job. I'm gonna do this, and I was. You know, I was the other guy. Yeah. You know, no, I, I never went that far whatsoever. I was very mindful, but I think that um, uh, these cycles repeat themselves, and in some ways, you know, these patterns happen over and over. But- People forget that that was very much going on in the dot com. Memories are short. Either if you weren't around, that's fine, but. You know, people were so concentrated on what it was, you know, that it was crypto. No, it's just, it's a, it's something that it's a pattern. It's you're just, seeing in, it in that kind again, of new asset. And over and over yeah. and will continue to happen. Yeah. But it's interesting you talk about FOMO because we we're so conscious of FOMO now, but that's also always been around and it's really powerful. Well, it's human nature is behavioral. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's part of how we're wired and, um, you need to be aware of it, and it, it's it's hard sometimes, yeah. you know, to to see, think that you're missing out, and people capitulate, and and I think this is part of the the process, you know, understanding. Um, I think the other framework I use every single time is similar matrix is decision versus outcome, right? This is a world where you control, you know, you can make a good decision, and you should expect to get a good outcome. You could make a bad, bad decision and expect to get a bad outcome. The kind of the challenge happens when you make a good decision, and uh, and you have a bad outcome, right? That can generate a lot of frustration, uh, or even worse, you make a bad decision, and you get a, a good outcome, right? So it's the, funny you say that's even worse. 
Yeah, it's even worse. It's, it's a little bit like playing Russian roulette, right? Mm-hmm. The normal thing is you play, normal things you should win, right? But that bad decision can actually lead you to do it again mm-hmm. and eventually things happen. So um, so yeah, I think these frameworks are, are very helpful. I think they're actually linked because it's almost like the human behavioral emotional thermometer is also linked to your stages in trading. So mm-hmm. stage one of unconscious incompetence tends to come with anger. So when when you face one of these situations, you know, be it you're losing money or you're having a, a what you thought was a good idea and something happened, anger is generally associated with unconscious incompetence, mm. right? When you move up, you start to experience uh, frustration. So when you know that you don't know, you're frustrated. Co- so this is your second trade and this is conscious. Yeah, first, exactly. Confidence. So the second level of, of I'm, I'm linking a little bit this idea is the second level, if you're feeling frustrated, when you have things going wrong, it's quite likely that you're in stage two. Uh, and, and, and I think the emotions is a very good thermometer to where we are. That's true. I would say anger and disbelief for the first one because you're also like, oh, that was wrong. I didn't know. I didn't know. But this one is frustration because you you kind of know you're wrong. Yeah, frustration. And, and you know, you, exactly. I think once once you go from there, the level three is acceptance. You know, something <laughs> happened. I'm okay. I knew what I was doing, whatever. And when you're truly at the at, at the master level, is complete indifference. So you are, you make money, you lose money. There's no. All right, emotion. that's crazy. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So let's talk about when you know you don't know. So for the checker, what was an example for you that you remember? I think there's there's a very interesting trade, and I'd like to link it to uh, people. Um, on emotionals uh, mm-hmm. trading, and I was already a bit more experienced. I I had um, you know, I started to be given in the beginning. You're just supporting, you're doing stuff, and then eventually you start to get some risk. No, so a little bit of allowance to 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 put positions to certain things. You're we're all managing a common book, but you start to have your own little stuff to to play around. So I remember I had a position at the time. It was in gold, and I was very convinced. You know that this thing was going a certain way. Things you know, were not going that way, and and um, and so the market got to to a point where I went to my boss and I said I I'd like to double the position, and um, and he said why? And it's like well because I think this then that. It's like okay fine, uh, but I want you to sell the trade, and then you buy twice, and I was like you're crazy. I mean why would I? Why would I sell it and then buy twice? It's isn't it just paying bid offers and commissions and whatever? It's like just do it. I was like, okay, fair enough. So I go to the the guy and say I need to sell ten thousand ounces. Well, and then I was like, mm. and I didn't buy it because once you're out of the trade, once you stop mm. out, once you're physically out of the trade, suddenly it was like, do I really want to put the new position again? And it was so obvious the guy, my boss was laughing, like looking at me because mm-hmm. he knew what was happening. And so in some ways, doubling up the position was a highly emotional mm. decision. And the stop loss, effectively what it did is it got me out. And then he would have been perfectly okay if I had doubled the position as, as such. But the discipline of exiting and being okay emotionally with losing that money, if someone's playing poker or whatever is just is folding it's mm-hmm. you know if you are effectively racing just based on emotions alone you might be making the suboptimal decision so what i learned then i was already more experienced but 
but I, I really learned the importance of, of stops and effectively trying to be as unemotional as, as possible. And it was it was like a light bulb that went. Yeah. And I, I, I thought I'd share with, with that's with, I think that's so interesting because you could literally go through that process. Anybody who's thinking about doing something instead of just adding to an existing, think about if you exit and had to put it on again and have to go through the sort of process that you go through, even if it's quick, about whether this is the right decision. That's a completely different kind of part of your brain that you're using. And and I think, you know, the idea of, well, I'll skip that part is, is actually cutting corners. And, yes, and, and you're, that, not ta- you're not thinking about your framework at all. And right? I think or it's your... it's important to have the discipline to exit. There's a bit of additional cost. And then you're looking at that opportunity with a complete fresh look. Plus, suddenly there are many other opportunities that might be better deployment of your capital in cash. So I think sometimes we fall into that trap. We get into... Uh, corners mm-hmm. that is very difficult to get out and that emotional uh, aspect of t- trading or investing becomes even worse the hole becomes even deeper and so i think it's extremely important to to honor those stops and profits in some ways uh although there's there's no uh, magic formula but certainly that discipline putting things in writing ideally setting the orders letting them go through and then mm-hmm. reinitiating it's very powerful so yeah, I think some of the best traders I've met, uh, depends on the banks, you know, they, they, where trading is different to, yeah. to a hedge fund. It's almost like every morning they looked at the world, you know, uh, yeah. from scratch. And it's like, yeah. but yesterday you were saying, it's like, yeah, but things have changed. I, so I, I, uh, that's I, incredibly important. I've ha- I've heard people, we've had people on who talked about that, especially long-term. Interestingly, commodity people mm-hmm. seem to really do that. I don't know if it's because the nature of those markets and Precisely. how quickly they can move. <laughs> But um, I know Peter Brandt, all of them will say that they sort of like restart and look at everything, yes. even if it's just from a theoretical perspective yes. to reboot. I'm thinking to myself on a much more pedestrian level that it's very similar to if you're out having a really good time and people convince you to keep staying out as opposed to saying, I'm just going to go home and change. The chance of you going back out again because <laughs> you have to think about, should I really be out this late? Absolutely. Am I going back out? Am I committed to doing that? Do I have to get up tomorrow? A completely different mindset than just carrying on and doubling down. You just down brought an analogy up. that is probably, you know, made the point, brought the point home to a bunch of people. I don't know but. what it says about my life, people, but <laughs> that, that's the one that popped to mind. But um, so then, then what happens when we move on to the third trade? Now, this is where it, they're more positive because we're talking about sort of the lessons learned and they're what, what we would consider bad trades. So now you're getting into the more positive trades. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, you advance your career, you you become, you know, more of an expert in certain things. And um, I wanted, as a, as a third idea, I wanted to highlight, you know, the when I wrote my first book. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And now this is unconscious. This is now we're competence. moving. We're, we're moving. In, into you're moving into con- competence. Conscious, conscious competence. Oh, so, conscious so competence. You, you know, oh, yes, yes. Conscious, you, you know yes. what you know. You know what you don't know. And uh, look, I think writing a book was a big decision. It's a big commitment. Mm. Um, and there's so much I learned from it. And I, you know, I think in, in some way Cicero, um, the, the the Greek philosopher, said, if you want to learn, teach. And I would definitely agree with that. And in fact, I would say if you want to learn, write. And in some ways, writing the first book, you're kind of naive enough that you think, hey, I know enough and I want to 
share my message. And, and I think I did, I, I, I did know, but perhaps through the process of writing, you realize hmm, maybe I didn't know it as well, or it forces you to structure your thoughts and, and ideas. So maybe I share this, this analogy. I, I, I use this framework, which I compare ideas to like Lego pieces, right? So I, you know, having been quite experienced in the energy markets, I've developed a bit of a investment thesis and, and, and then you're like, how do I tell the story? Right. And you can tell the story in so many ways, you know, chronologically upstream, downstream in terms of so many, so many angles. And so the, the beauty of writing the book is you take all those Lego pieces, you put them on the table and you see literally hundreds of ideas, you know, some are green, some are red, some are big, some are circular, some they're all completely different shapes, colors, so sizes. Tiny ones some that are, you can never find when you're tiny, trying to build one with your child. But all those ideas are there. And so basically for me, writing the book was more like, okay, let's order these pieces. So that my brain, you know, just I start by color, right? Mm. So let's just put the pieces. And when you do that, suddenly you say, what happened? Where's, where's green? Mm. There's no green. When you had all the ideas um, scattered on the, on, uh, on, the, on the table, it was very difficult to know what's what, where's where. But when you order, you realize very quickly, okay, because we have a natural order, in this case, the, the rainbow, you could see there's, there's no green. And, and that, in fact, happened in, in, in the book. It was the energy world is flat. It was this thesis of the flattening of the energy world. And, and you know, the book was already very advanced. I had my thesis. And, and someone asked me, or I asked, you know, through the process, how about renewables? How do they fit? Because I was touching on crude oil and gas and coal and, you know, nuclear and, and, and many others. It's like, how about renewals? And my answer is like, how about renewals? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, hmm. let's think about it. So the beauty is that when I put... We're, how about green? When I put that through the framework, sort of magic happened because not only it fit the framework, it actually became one of the strongest mm. arguments in favor. So I feel saving the distance a bit like uh, Mendeleev when he put forward the periodic table, uh, there were actually two holes, if I remember correctly. And there were two elements that according to his framework were there, but they had not been discovered yet. And so when those elements were discovered, it was like, my God, it was predicted. So I think I had that sort of moment. And when you actually take your ideas and you structure in other dimensions, you go from size to small or whatever you say, how about the tiny pieces? How about the big ones? How about the shapes? How about... So by the time you've taken your ideas and literally sorted them out in every single possible dimension and you research the areas that you're missing, your story is so much deeper and so of much course. more profound. And so by the time you go to an interview with Raul or whoever, you're like, you've pretty much covered a lot of stuff. It just doesn't mean it's a complete, you know, But you know it picture, inside out. You have but much you, more confidence But you have way it. more understanding than you did before yeah. I, write, I wrote the book. So I kept that discipline of writing ever since. It's been, Interesting. It's been incredibly powerful because it forces you to actually articulate and structure your own thoughts. And this is why... You know, some of my readers might complain about the length of some of the newsletters, but <laughs> it is, it is, you write for yourself. Yes. First and foremost. Yeah. If that happens to help other people, I always find it fascinating that people actually get something out of it, but it's, it's, it's actually a process where you are uh, forcing yourself to structure your own thoughts. And so I think that's, I recommend whatever it is, uh, yeah. gardening, you know, 
football, paint, whatever it is, I recommend people write because it's an extraordinarily powerful process. That's so interesting. Did you, at the point that you put everything out, some people stop when it's not because there's a there's some chaos to that and the task of trying to categorize it or organize it, however you one does that, um, can be can be daunting. It's sort of the opposite of the blank page. It's so much information that it, 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 people some people can walk away. Were you ever tempted to do that? No, of course, in the sense that at the end of the day, but writing a book is a major commitment. You need um, time, mm. and um, you know, I you, you need to find that time. And there's something that will give up. I have literally three books that I'm writing as we speak, but it's not a those. Lego pieces are in three different tables. And what happens is every time you pick up an article, an idea, or whatever, you you park them there. So mm-hmm. you, they don't have to be books. They're just areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And um, and they just keep going. And it's a long-term... But they're kind of growing. It's, it's funny lo- you mentioned a garden. It's kind of like the book is growing. It's, at, it's a long-term project. And yeah. and they're there. They're alive. And they they help you. And so ultimately, I think this this process is is helpful. And I think having those ideas... but. But you're right. I would say 90% or 85 to 90% of the time is actually ordering and researching the ideas. The actual drafting, in my particular case, it's it's easier. Yeah. I, I could write a book and I don't know, if I just went on a holiday for, for a month, I'd probably get all done, provided all the ideas are in place. Um, and that's really the bulk of the exercise. Did you realize, I'm going to go back to the example of the book that, that you wrote on the flat energy world. Did you realize that the green was missing until you organized it? Did you think it was more baked before you laid everything out and realized there was a chunk that you hadn't really thought about? Was that a surprise It came up to through you? the process. It was a surprise yeah. to me. It came up through the, through the process. Isn't that interesting that you... It was fascinating. It was that sort of eureka moment of, yeah. oh my God, I think we're up to something here. That was the, the validation for me that it was... And I think the key message I wanted to share from this trade also is very important is the you know the value of having an investment thesis yeah uh, or a hypothesis okay so every single trade should have an investment thesis and why is this important I go back to the emotional side of things I mean when I had that book what the question is what would have happened if I have my book everything's lined up and someone asked me hey Diego, how about green? And actually green completely throws everything down. Mm. There's no book mm. or, the, or the book changes or the direction changes. So the importance of the thesis is that you, it's not you that is wrong, it's the thesis. Mm. And so it makes it a very humbling exercise because the fact that you're talking about an investment thesis already puts you into the position of I'm right until proven wrong rather than the, you know, ego approach that most of us would have, which is, well, you told me to buy Euro dollar. And then it's mm-hmm. like, well, the thesis was this is what's happening. These are the risks. So the moment you detach yourself from my trade to an investment thesis, that emotional side of things changes because then you adjust to new information in a, and you take it in a completely different way. You're much more willing to which is, process the Which is, it's, it's again, going back to the emotions, going back to that process. And so the fact that in that book, things were reinforced was very powerful, but there's been instances where actually, at first it looks like it, mm-hmm. it, it's contradicting the thesis, 
But actually, when you think about it, it brings a way bigger, more profound mm. problem or, 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 or exercise. So I think that very humble uh, approach to, to investing, to the thesis, and to be able to adjust to new information and changes makes effectively the process, there's less friction, there's yeah. less fatigue. It's, it's, you're, you're trying to flow and ultimately be as you know, unbiased and, and, uh, and as, as possible. And that impacts every single side of the trading from, you know, the sizing to the entry to the exit yeah. and everything else. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more of an information archaeologist, really. You're sort of on, on the road of discovery as opposed to making it about your personal ability. It's sort of the secret sauce of Google, too. That's how they structure everything, right? They set up a thesis, they try to kill it. Um, but exactly. and then they and then it moves on and keep but, but there's they're, they're always pumping new information and inputs in because it's not really about um, a team's ability or competence. It's just about whether the project works. That's right. they've been able to really accelerate I agree with of that. that. So the next one is the best and sounds like the most fun that we all want to get to. And that is the unconscious competence. Yeah, I think, you know, once you reach, let's say, master level in what, whatever it is, and I think we all are. In, in some fields, um, it could be anything. In fact, one of the most difficult things about unconscious uh, competence is that you are so good at it, so good that uh, you can't believe people. Uh, you know, you, you you actually don't, you're not even aware that you're as good, or and so you won't. You know, in my case, I could give you some examples, or, or in in both directions. But uh, my wife, for example, she has a very natural uh, orientation ability and I might get lost more easily. She will not believe. It's like, what do you mean? You know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, for her, it's impossible to, to think that how can you not know that, you know, I'm sure she has, Dublin is that way. It's I'm like, sure she well, has some I think, words when I think you're, you're driving. <laughs> so, no, I think the, the idea is that we're all think about the challenges. Think about mm. what are you so good at that everyone recognizes that but you take it for granted mm -hmm. and so in some ways i think this it was a it was a bit of a revelation i know and i i, I know it sounds like you know showing off or whatever but we're all very very good at certain things and i think you need to find them and the challenge sometimes is that you're not even aware that you're so good at them because mm -hmm. they're so natural to you yeah and so you went back to maths right or whatever it, it just came very naturally to me and mm -hmm. that and so in some ways do you choose your dog or does your dog choose you, right? Career-wise, if you're able to flow and adjust to those areas where you're really, really good at and you have that unconscious, you know, uh, competence, I think chances are you're going to be uh, much better, much happier, much more productive. Mm. And and so I think in that sense, managing career change is, is a bit of a discovery as well of, and you know, how, how we move. And yeah, in my case, look, started engineering, moved on to finance. You know, I've been lucky to be on the, the buy side with some amazing firms and the sell side. I've you know reinvented myself a few times, and I think those all those changes were very strategic. I think I've always sort of think very strategically long term about the the career. And there's been instances, you know, for example, when I was to, to join Goldman Sachs, I had an offer from a called a tier two uh, bank that paid significantly more. And many people didn't understand why I, I didn't take that. But for me, it was very, very obvious that the MPV of the move, it was it was much better to work for the right team or the right franchise. You could think, you know, I would rather play for Real Madrid mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. or Barcelona or, you know, for less money than, than for it, uh, perhaps a tier two team. And I think that mindset of, you know, being long-term, being strategic, flowing and, and, and adjusting your own career and path to, to things that you enjoy and you do well. And, and, and again, you might be naturally developing that, that competence. Um, it's, it's super important. So I like thinking about it in, in terms of being unconscious, because I think two things, I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit when we acknowledge that we're good at something, because as you say, it's unconscious to us. So we just sort of think everybody has it, which is not necessarily the case. So you need to kind of be aware of that and give yourself credit for that and lean into that. But also we've kind of trained ourselves to think killing yourself in hard work is a badge of somehow getting that experience. Um, And while it's not bad, in and of itself, it's not always the way that you get to sort of that level of Yeah, I think wisdom. you have this this debate of talent versus uh, work hard. And uh, I, I love uh, Tony Nadal would say, working hard is a talent. Yeah. And I strongly believe in that. And I think being proud of, you know, working hard. But if you hate it and it's not your area, if it's not an area yeah, of flow, then sometimes it's you not have to going ref- to. You have to reflect. Uh, yeah. You have to reflect on these things. And unfortunately, beggars and choosers, right? We need mm-hmm. to take certain jobs. We need to do certain things. And, and I think the attitude there, you know, even, you know, I love my degrees, but there were subjects that I was like, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. this is not something I'm particularly interested on, uh, about. But I always tried to sort of take the positive side of, okay, someone's devoted their life. There must be something we can take out of this. In <laughs> even o- if it's in, what I don't want to do in, anymore. In other cases, the only motivation was like, I just want to take this exam once. So, <laughs> And I'm never going to do Whichever it again. is, I'm doing this. Sometimes knowing what you don't want to do is as important. Absolutely. Absolutely. When, when, you, when you sort of are in that fourth stage, um, is it hard to be a teacher when you can't believe that no one else knows it? Is that something we have to be aware of? You know what I mean? Like if you know it so well... How can you teach it to others? No, the, the fact that you know it so well becomes um, more intuitive. But mm-hmm. I think it's almost the ability to simplify the process. So, you know, Einstein, or, you know, would say if you, if you can't explain it simply enough, it's because you don't understand it well mm-hmm. enough. Or Feynman in his framework would say, explain it to me as if I was a five-year-old. And the answer is, if you cannot do that, then, yeah, probably you don't know it well enough. And I think that's kind of a corollary of, of what we're discussing in terms mm-hmm. of that work. So don't confuse being very good at something with necessarily the ability to to explain it. Um, I'm sure Messi or, you know, Ronaldo or Federer, the things that just, they look, you know, reflexive and, and not very natural. There, there is a lot of work. There's things that become natural, second nature. But I think, I think sports is a good example of how you develop that level of competence. Mm. And some of it is talent. Some of it is is, uh, is is hard work. But let's not fool ourselves. I think at at that, the learning process is an asymptotic process, meaning mm-hmm. you're never quite going to get to to 100%. And there might be different leaps, and that incremental, uh, you know, marginal improvements from uh, the competitive sports. You know, what's the difference between Djokovic and 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 Medvedev, you know, in, in a certain match, it could be... Yeah, on any given day. It could be one point, it could be a fraction of one ball that went in and out. And so we're talking about games of very small differences. And I think this mm-hmm. is also true in investments. It's it's a game of small differences. The difference between, you know, being stopping out and the right size. And so what it means is that every tiny little 
thing matters, right? And 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 there's a process here. Um, so when you think about going back to 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 the framework, you know, when I teach, you know, I love teaching. It's just something I will 100%. I think if if I can in my career as a professor, um, and I think that comes also as part of my perhaps my, my competence. But I was I was teaching sort of the four stages of of trading, and perhaps that'll be a separate discussion one day. But uh, but yeah, so that level of you know how you you start thinking I want to be correct. Mm-hmm. So the idea of why are you buying this because it's going up, then moving on to understanding the concept of expectancy. It's not just a, a probability; it's a game of asymmetry. Uh, then understanding position sizing because even with a positive expectancy, you know, position sizing can can actually destroy the trades and and and. And then lastly, the art of portfolio construction, which is, you know, really where I'm spending most most of our time today as uh, effectively in the, in the analogy of the football team being the goalkeeper and explaining the value of the team and not just, you know, the striker, the goalkeeper, but also the value of this rebalancing alpha, which if we were to extend to other examples, we could bring to any other sport, basketball, yeah. football or others. So I think in that sense, there's a lot of, a ton of things that are connected that, are linked in many ways about how we learn. And and I think this idea of analogies is fascinating because I find analogies, they're reflexive. Yeah. So uh, I could explain to you or to my mom a problem into in, in her language. And the fascinating thing is not only she will understand it, she will actually ask me in cooking terms. Yeah. The question that if I translated back into my world was exactly the right question right. to ask, which would never happen. Which would have never having... happened in my world, right? And so, in some ways, it's like speaking different languages, and yeah. why I think maths or English is such important. They're, they're languages and and worlds yeah. that if you connect, and so I'm passionate about that. It's an area that I think you know, in particular, science and physics yes. and, and 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 markets have tons of relationships. We saw it with. Black and Scholes, but there are tons of things that can be explained, and there's already a lot of literature or understanding. And, and so I'm fascinated by this idea of you know interdisciplinary knowledge and effectively bringing down those those silos and elevating our our knowledge. It helps people understand. I often say that it's living at the intersection where things are interesting, and I think especially when it comes to understanding this kind of stuff. Did did, did people who knew you when you were an engineer or starting out or just getting into options, could they would they be surprised that you're an author and that you think about things so much in terms of writing and communication? Because those aren't always skills that are associated with engineers. The first person that is surprised that I wrote a book, it's me. <laughs> because I can tell you that it didn't come naturally. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I have these ideas. And I had to create a bit of a framework. So if you read my books, for example, um, it's it's a bit like we discussed earlier, but it's it's almost like you build a skeleton and then you start with bullet points mm-hmm. and then you fill them up. So if you read my book, you could read just the first line of each paragraph. That's the message. Then I explain and they have a punchline. Every single paragraph has a self-contained idea. So in some ways you could read my books just by reading the first line. If you're like, oh, I didn't quite understand, I explained. But that helped me move forward because otherwise that paragraph I could continue to write it and rewrite it forever but in bullet point it worked so something that was not natural to me like drafting 
but the ideas and the bullet points and the ordering and the an an analysis ca comes very naturally. The drafting doesn't. So I needed some sort of formula to help me draft. Um, and I think that is how I, I, I got around it. But but yeah, otherwise, I think there are tons of things, you know, my, you know, we look back and, you know, with my friends, we all had certain traits. You could tell who was more of a, you know, let's say engineer or yeah. who was going to be a lawyer. And, <laughs> and some of us, many of us followed our, our parents' paths and some of, some of us went in completely different directions. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. What what would it, as we as we wrap up? What would your advice? You just gave so much good advice to people who are, you know, earlier on the journey. I'd say, or maybe thinking about taking a little bit more control over their financial life. Um, what what was some parting advice that you would give them? Um, I think uh, you need to find a trading strategy that fits your personality, and so. I'll go back to sports just to uh, to make my point. If you told me, Diego, we have all these guys that play tennis. I mean, look, I'd love everyone to play like Roger Federer, right? But it doesn't happen, right? Some people are going to be naturally fighters. They're going to be more like Rafa's. Some people are going to be more like, you know, Djokovic. Some people are going to be more like Federer. Some people are going to be... Ultimately, you are yourself. And so there are traits from Rafa or Roger or or you know uh, any that you can pick on, but you have to be yourself. And so I think it comes down to who what what's the trading style that fits your personality best. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, for example, I I will stress out with uh, positions that have open risk and have stop losses because I'm watching the screen and but. My personality fits very well with long-dated options, things that I know. Uh, I have plenty of time to be correct. I know my downside. The market can go against me. The market could say this option's worth zero. I'm fine. That's your view. I have three years to be right. And even if I'm wrong, it's sized the right way. So my natural evolution, my dog picked me, right? In the <laughs> sense that you are adjusting your style and there are people that uh, did the, the exact opposite. They feel, they stress out, if they buy an option and they, they bleed and they mm -hmm. decay and they're very comfortable trading. So I think in that sense, you really, my advice would be, you know, control the risk. First and foremost, watch out for, you know, position sizing uh, and, and just, you know, in general, it's, it's a game of staying alive and being able to protect your capital and compound. And and I think as you do that, the answer is there's no right or wrong. There are thousands, infinite ways of making and losing money, just like there are infinite ways of, of playing tennis or, or, or different games. But I think you have to be honest with who am I, what comes more naturally. And so if you happen to have unconscious incompetence in biotech, it's just you love it and you're really good at that's probably something you should explore further yeah. and you will find that you're more likely to make money investing in biotech than pretending to trade oil, which you have absolutely no idea about. But at the same time, I would also encourage people to expand their circle of, of competence um, with the caveat that the more <laughs> wider you go, the bigger it gets. But I, I think it's about finding you know, this trading style that works for you, your personality that comes easy and and most important that you do without 
emotions and and that really sticks to something you excel at and if you do that i think chances are you'll be very successful but the minute you feel anger frustration or even acceptance there's some work to be done until you get to the point of uh emotional indifference <laughs> which sounds funny but that's the goal <laughs> yeah i think again let's go back to to tennis um you know how many times you know you see a point where the the ball hits the net and goes to the other side or the guys that start screaming and you know Roger Federer wouldn't blink you know it just goes like okay why because he knows the next time the ball will go on the other side and and it's a probabilistic game so yeah sometimes you're unlucky sometimes you're lucky luck evens out in the long term these guys have very different ways of looking at the world yeah, um you know Someone like uh, Rafa focuses on on the process, you know, the outcome for him is secondary, and and I think there's lots of lessons to to apply and learn from 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 these guys. So uh, yeah, I think the goal is find that level of of competence, and the thermometer is going to be how do you feel, and 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 ultimately how are you how are you doing? Great stuff, Diego. Thank you so much for joining Thank you, us. Thank you, Maggie. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Hey everybody, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION.